0: Hi, I'm Amelia Torres and this is Shaping Sapiens. Our guest today drove up from Washington DC to New York to be the next guest on our show. Her name is Fran Tatu and she is the daughter of a Japanese American mother and a father of French Canadian descent. As you'll learn from her today, her childhood was unique and it's what laid the foundation for her immense capacity for compassion for others. I've been following Fran in her recent activism, from when she traveled to Standing Rock to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline, to when she stood on the steps of the Supreme Court to protest the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, which I actually discovered from seeing her photo on NPR's Instagram feed, and to recently when she was speaking up on behalf of the 2,000-plus children currently being detained in Homestead, Florida. As she said to me, it's not about her. It's about doing the work to raise the voices of those who need it most. She teaches me that even the smallest acts of kindness can lead to big global impact. Before we begin, please note this is an adult conversation and some parts may not be suitable for children. So without further ado, it's my great honor to welcome folklorist and human rights activist Fran Tatu. How do you say your last name? Tattoo. Tattoo. It's Tattoo. French. It's French-Canadian. Oh, gosh. My goodness. Oui, oui.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did not grow up speaking French. I studied French later oh, as an adult. wow. But that's the origin of it. And I have a funny story about that. My father is from Buffalo, New York, and he has some native. We're not sure what it could be. People have told me possibly Métis. But it's mostly French-Canadian and a little bit of Irish mixed in. So he met my mother at Berkeley. My mother is uh, Japanese, Japanese-American. His mother was against the marriage in those years, in the 1950s. Actually, not that dissimilar to now, but it's, it, their marriage was considered miscegenation. And she was outright against it. Her parents, in the valley in California, she grew up in um, near Visalia from a farming community, were fine. They are very open-minded. Wow. Uh, yet, the surrounding community of Japanese Americans weren't always so great about people, outsiders, especially their women marrying. It's, this, is, this is an old old story. You'll hear it in all cultures, having the women marry outside of their culture and race, actually. So they thought my father was Japanese because the name was Teitu. And my grandparents just let everyone think that. They just uh, didn't change it. They didn't tell people wow. that she wasn't marrying a Japanese man. So it's funny. And the name is the name is like me. It can be from many places, actually.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'll just say because of because I'm Eurasian, I have been able to slip through the veils in many different places. When we were I was in Sri Lanka on my honeymoon, I had Sri Lankans coming up and asking me directions, which, which mm-hmm. thrilled me. I thought, oh, I can blend in, you know, which right. is what I think we all as as Homo sapiens wish to do to be uh, accepted and to belong. Yes, which is a lot of what I'm working on right now. Right now.
0: Yes, <laughs> I'm so happy that you're here. It's such an honor to have Thank you. Thank you. I've been following your just your journeys the past few years, and you and I met under really wonderful circumstances in Austin. And I just, you just know when you meet kindred spirits mm-hmm. that no matter how much time mm-hmm. goes by, that you're just gonna pick up right where you right where you left off, and that everybody that you meet in life has a gift for you, right? So thank you for being this gift today.
1: (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. I'm so
0: honored. Well, I'd love to begin. Thank you for sharing that. And let's go back further.
1: Where? So tell us, where are you from? Where were you born? Mm, That's a really loaded question for me. (laughs) It's very funny. Uh, Like I said, my dad's from Buffalo. His roots are there, coming down from the French-Canadian side. And my mother was born in the valley, although her family... Her parents are what are called the Issei, the first generation of Japanese, traveling Japanese, who were born in the United States. She's Nisei. I would be Seisei if my father had been Japanese. So the Issei were the first generation. They were born in the United States, yet during the internment, they had not yet received citizenship. My mother was a citizen because she was just of that. Maybe it's like the Dreamers. I'm not quite sure. They met at Berkeley... Dad was about to go into law. He took the foreign service exam, which even at that time was quite stringent. He passed it, so he joined the foreign service, uh, became a US diplomat, and they moved to DC. And I was born. I was born in DC. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then when I was six months old, we moved to Hong Kong. And that began my time of living in Southeast Asia for most of my childhood into my early teens. Wow. So I was about sixteen.
0: Wow, wow! Mm-hmm. And I oh,
1: just before we started recording, I asked. I said,
0: "You asked me where I was from." I was like, "Oh, I'm from Texas. I grew up in Georgia." And I was like, "What about you?" You're like, "Well, beti- between you know, six months and sixteen, <laughs> I lived in nine different countries." <laughs> My goodness. Yeah,
1: and I'm, I'll, I'll date myself, but it was uh, in the early '60s, and life it was very different then. We traveled either by cruise liner out of San Francisco wow. or by prop plane. There was no ah. internet, no cell phones. I remember receiving a telegram when my, my grandfather had passed when we were in the Philippines at that time. You know, it was very, very different. We mm-hmm. were quite isolated, which was a gift in a way. Yes. Because we came became completely immersed in uh, the cultures of where we were living. My father was a linguist, as I mentioned to you, so we were always encouraged to learn the language. And I take after him. I was just oh. able to pick up languages. They also taught us about a catchphrase now, cultural appropriation, not forgetting that where we were from and that we were there to be bridges between, you know, what was happening in America and wherever we were. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Hong Kong, when I was very young, uh, my sister was born there, so I must have been two. It was about 63, I think. In 61, sorry, we moved, we, we moved to Laos, and we were there several years uh, until there was a coup d'etat. So we were evacuated with my mother, uh, and my father stayed. And we resided in the Erwan Hotel in Bangkok for a while, waited for him to do his work. I'm not sure how long that was. And then we moved to Taiwan. And we were there several years. We moved to the Philippines, where my brother was born. We were there four years. We loved the Philippines. And all in all of these places, I was going to international schools or American schools. Wow. Just complete diversity around me. You know, it was mm. fantastic. And my parents, again, were the kind of folks who encourage us to well, I don't want to offend anyone, but my dad used to call it the wagon train mentality the wagon train complex of having just the American club and never going out of either the embassy or the American clubs or really just getting to know where we were he was a great adventurer, Hmm. so we always you know, spent a lot of time traveling wherever we were Philippines, then Thailand, back to the States for a short culture shock, total shock for uh, junior high, and then we went to Nepal. I was 14. It was amazing. So we lived in Kathmandu, and there was no school for me. So I did correspondence. I did not want to leave my family and go down to what was called heroin high in Delhi. So I did correspondence. We had a tutor. So I got to go on quite a few treks up into the Himalayas, and I was chaperoned for my sister's school. And then we went to Chiang Mai, where my dad was counsel. Came back to the states for a while. By that time, I was. In George Mason University, they were firing my professor, Fred Millar, who was a Marxist, and I didn't like that. I ended up on the front page of the Washington Post in a my first protest, I guess you could say. That's a good story. And I hadn't told my parents I was going to this protest, and I was there in my army jacket protesting the firing of my Marxist professor, Fred Millar. (laughs) My parents thought it was great, so then I went down. I followed my boyfriend to Richmond for a few months, and then I I went to Indonesia to help my father set up his household because my mom needed to stay in DC to finish up some work. So Indonesia was an amazing experience, and it actually is where I met my husband. Some years later, was married in Bali, and then wow. he and I went on a year long trek to show each other places we'd lived. He had grown up. He's also American. He, He's a husband. But he, <laughs> what does that mean, a husband? He means that he's an ex-husband. Oh, it's oh, a nice oh. way of saying ex. <laughs> and so a husband. He grew up in, he grew up in uh, his family was from Oklahoma, but he grew up in Singapore. So we had a lot mm. in common. Yes. So I think that covers it. You know, as a married uh, person, we, we, we traveled quite a bit. He worked in Dubai for some time. So it was exactly as I hoped that my children would also have some international experience, understanding of the world, understanding of the other, just not what was... Yes. Yeah.
0: Oh, I love love how you just framed that. And Mm -hmm. gosh, you used the word peripatetic, which is a word that I (laughs) so love and is in my bones as well, just constant moving. My dad would say, there's a phrase in Spanish, patas de perro. What is it? patas de
1: perro because pa- I'm learning Spanish now I'm francophone I'm francophile but so pa- patas patas are yes. like hooves like a paws oh. so patas de perro
0: so, so dog, dog, dog is dog's perro. feet and dog's feet wandering you know they're out there's love <laughs> that thank you <laughs> and the whole phrase is like se anda con patas de perro Beautiful. so you travel you amble you with, amble you
1: go with the flow really go with the flow mm, one of the ways to put it <laughs> Yes, so I I am right now in transition. I was uh, activated when I... I was working on a lavender farm in the Pacific Northwest, in the mm -hmm. islands, the San Juan Islands, and our season ends in November. And I, of course, had lived in Texas for a long time, and my community was, I felt, under attack. So I went down to El Paso to volunteer and go to a place where people were bearing witness at a youth detention center... And after being there for three months and just, you know, just having the most amazing experiences, worked at a place called Borderland Rainbow Center, where I cook, because one of the things I do is I like to cook for large groups. I decided I could no longer live my comfortable life in my beach house, working for a lavender farm. There was too much going on in the world. So I moved and put my things in storage. And that was just a month ago. So I've jumped into the void. Wow! I don't have a place to live right now. I'm just traveling. You are just
0: traveling, and mm-hmm. I was inspired. I, I reached out to you because I had
1: just seen you were in Florida. Yes, that's where Homestead is, mm. and that's uh, Homestead concerns us because it's the largest unaccompanied migrant youth uh, detention center in the country, and it, but it's for, for profit, and it's in a no-man's land. It's on a military base, not actually in the town of Homestead, so there's no... They're not held to any standards. They can do what they like. I think there are up to close to 3,000 kids there right now. So I went down to join a group that, just like there's a group that bears witness at Auschwitz, they go there yearly just to bear witness to the place. These folks are bearing witness outside the detention center, calling for the closing of this place and the releasing of these innocent kids to their sponsors it's for profit they they make approximately 775 dollars a day per child so there's great incentive just like wow. the privatized prison system to keep people in, incarcerated and not uh, versus you know helping them rehabilitate and these kids have done nothing wrong they just showed up at the border wow mm-hmm. could you speak more about these groups that bear witness it started with a man named Josh Rubin who turned up at Tornillo and he just wanted to see what was happening and to watch and report on what was going on. And then he, he became a folk hero. He's got a, a following now. And when they closed Tornillo down, with the it was a huge combined effort with politicians, Merkley from Oregon, Beto from El Paso, mm. Judy Chu, Representative Chu oh, from California, and lobbying with a group called Shutdown Torneo. They were able to get that closed down. What happened while we were there was that the administration lifted the ban on having any sponsor who would... Because that's what the kids are waiting for, their sponsors. They need, they need sponsors. They, they had a stipulation that any sponsor had to be fingerprinted, and everyone in the household would also be fingerprinted. Well, this put everyone at risk if you were undocumented, at risk for ICE detaining you. So the sponsors weren't showing up, and the kids were languishing there. There's a Flores Agreement where they're not supposed to be in detention. Uh, it's called the Flores Agreement, not to be in detention for more than 20 days. Well, some of those kids in, in Tornillo were there for nine months, wow. and we're not sure how long some of these kids have been in Homestead, but it's way more than 20 days. So they lifted the ban, the kids were released... But children are still arriving. They're running from the, from the gangs, you know, or from things like organ trafficking and sex trafficking, these kind of things that we don't talk about very much. It's my main concern. Uh, we are the largest producers of child porn in the world, the U.S., and definitely the kids who've disappeared, there's no doubt in my mind that they're, um, they've been trafficked. So this is my motivation right now. My other motivation is that my mother, in the 1940s, was interned as a Japanese-American, even though she was American citizen, and that's called the internment. But she was detained for several years in the desert, in Poston. They, they were lucky. They didn't lose their farm. They lost a lot of what was in the house, and that's a whole other story, but they had their land, so they were able to recoup after the war. They didn't go right back, though. They had to travel to Wisconsin after they were released because there was so much racism in the valley Mm. against Japanese Americans. And today, people were surmised that the American farmers lobbied FDR to go ahead and detain the Japanese Americans because they worked just like most immigrants to this country. They worked so hard. They were making the American farmers look bad. They were competition for them. So oh, wow. there, was, there was a lot of uh, resentment towards these hardworking, uh, newest wave of immigrants. Wow. It's happening. It happens in every generation. Mm, it's happening now. And we don't learn from <laughs> the previous generation. We seem, to be, we seem to be going backwards. But actually what I feel is that the, it's the karma of this country rising up. We have to deal with how, what this country was founded on. They're, they surmise there are 500 million uh, Native Americans, indigenous people, who were slaughtered. That everywhere you go in this country, there were tribes. Some of the some of the tribes are complete. There's no trace of them, whatsoever. Wow. So they were wiped out. And then, of course, there was a whole issue with uh, bringing African Americans from Africa, yeah. and the issue of slavery. So we can bemoan what's happening in the country now, but I think it's just clearing it's a clearing I it's agree. it's coming what's the word i want it's it's uh, not accountability but it's um i can't think of the word it's almost like facing our shadow mm-hmm. good
0: we've run mm-hmm. from it for so long and now it's mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. front of us to deal and with
1: many difficult conversations are coming up and they just need to be met i always believe that things come up for a reason for you to face them head on and i always say to people if you can speak your truth with heart you can get through it yes and then you grow, you become a better person, you have more compassion. It's always about compassion for the other, for me. It has been for her. Because when I returned to the country as a you know, bright-eyed, I think I was 16 or so, I was shocked at how people in this country didn't really know about people elsewhere. And their perceptions of my experiences were strange. They asked me if I lived in little huts and ate rice every day and that kind of thing. where I'd been living in these very sophisticated urban cities and that we didn't have much to do with either the Canadians or the folks from Mexico. We didn't know our neighbors well. And then, of course, it was the whole issue of the civil rights. I was an avid reader of that, and I was disturbed by it. (laughs) I didn't understand why you wouldn't celebrate someone's differences and the diversity. My gosh. Mm -hmm. So it stayed with me, you know, since I was young. Mm. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Being a young child abroad and moving around so much, when do you think this seed of you have this natural ability to be inclusive Mm -hmm. to all, Mm. where did that start?
1: Is it just through experiences? Mm. Is it not sure. I think that I most probably picked up the racism that was directed towards my mother. We were living abroad in Asia. People spoke pidgin language to her. There were comments. You know, I've heard my father tell stories how he had to defend her, and he was such a human rights activist. He was actually a human rights officer when we were in Indonesia, wow. and he... He uh, was a very sensitive being, and he would cry when he would tell the stories of, say, the prisoners being released release from, um, I think it's either Borneo or Sulawesi, political prisoners. He, he just was really concerned about children abroad, mm-hmm. had adopted many kids, took them under his wing and was helping them uh, in his retirement. My father was a great—both my parents inspired me. My father, by his example, just taught me to treat people well and to Mm -hmm. be inclusive and to have compassion for someone who's suffering, you know? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And my mother, I always think back to I was about seven because my brother had just been born, or six, and I was playing in the street with some street kids outside our house in the Philippines, and I don't remember what I said, but I came inside and... Must have made a disparaging remark. And my mother turned and she said, Don't you ever, don't you ever judge someone for the way they're dressed or how little they have? She said, Do you know how lucky you are that you have a house for your head, you have a roof over your head, and you have food on your table tonight? Yeah. She goes, You don't know what their situation is. And I remember that to this day, you know, learning about my privilege. Mm. Mm-hmm. At the same time, my parents were not white saviors. They understood that it was more important to empower people than to go in and do things for them. So I learned that lesson as well, to just respect, to meet them where they were, and to respect their experience, and to be there if people needed help. I will say that when we lived in Jakarta, my father would come home from the embassy at night, and then he would go outside with a a whiteboard to teach people English because he knew that would help them. And um, there was a young kid on the street named Walkieman I love this story. I told it at his memorial. And Walkieman was a young kid young, tough kid and dad could see he was gonna get into trouble. So we gave him a job to kind of help in our garden. And then he taught him to drive, much to my mother's dismay, because we didn't really actually need a driver. And he <laughs> drive that well and the traffic patterns in Jakarta were insane (laughs) but he gave that kid a future because at some point Walkman came and said he had to go to East Java for a a family member's death but we knew because we'd heard through the grapevine that an oil company had offered him a job you know so the upshot of the story is that there was a street of expatriates and embassy housing and that kind of thing and pretty much every expatriate on the street was robbed except for us and we didn't have alarm systems. We didn't have a dog. We were just protected because the people knew that my dad was a good guy and they weren't going to let anyone break in. Wow. So to answer your question, I think it was just inculcated in me from a very young age, the fact that I have a m- mother who is a woman of color and my father who's basically a white guy. Um, <laughs> I just carry that in me, like I told you earlier. I love it that I can go to many different cultures and people can't figure out if I'm from there or not. Uh, So I'm a bridge between cultures just in my being. And then growing up American abroad, not being of that culture, but learning to respect those cultures, it was harder for me to come back to the States until many years later. i comfortable here now, but I wasn't for many years. So is that the answer to your question? Yes, all of it is. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, and I just don't know why I have it. Uh, I just have a great need for people to be... You know, when my children were in school and you had to write those forms, uh, you had they had you fill out all kinds of questions. I would always say, a little reading, writing, and arithmetic is important, but what I want you to teach my children is compassion. I would like that to be taught in the classroom because that's the most I really wanted my children to have, you know, understanding for other people. And my daughter is now, she went into nursing, and now she's going to be working with young children. My son is doing art. Uh, They're 24 and 26, I'll just say that, Maya and Adri. (laughs) And they make me proud of them every day because they're kind. Mm.
0: So important. Mm. So important. So important. It's so
1: easy. (laughs) It's so easy. If people were just compassionate, could for a moment step into the other's shoes. Yes. Now, a big problem I see that we're having in this country and actually the world right now is polarization. And my dad always talked to me about it. People get set in their stance and then the other is wrong, or it's just not them. This is where I think racism may stem from. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I learned a great lesson recently in the Black Hills. I went to study with my Lakota elder, and there were men from, holy men from the Sierra Nevada called the Mau Mau or the Kogi. And they do have women, Mau Mau, but the women were not traveling at this time. And one night they spoke about the sacredness of women, and wow. it was quite amazing to hear them. So just the fact that they were men and only the men traveling, I just wanted to clear that up. Yeah. But they taught us many things, but the main lesson I brought from them was not to call someone or something else evil. Because the minute you do that, there is no chance of your coming together in a compromise. So I, you know, move through the world and I see things that are evil and I see people that I think maybe have no good in them. But that's not entirely true, is it? I don't think we're born evil. Yeah. So if something's happened to them or or they were abused, so they became abusers. Anyway, what I've always tried to do is find that light in that situation or that person and reach for that and give them the opportunity to maybe move towards the light, move towards the good, but at the very least not to polarize that being or what's happening, even with this detention. It's distressing to me, but I don't call it evil, or I just use euphemisms, you know. So that there's a possibility that those people who are doing this for profit at the expense of others' suffering will wake up and realize, hey, this isn't a good way to make a living. And these people have every right to be free from pain and suffering, you know, om Samasta sukino babantu all beings deserve to be free from pain and suffering. Yes. So this is my, you know, hope. And you <laughs> use the word activated earlier, you said
0: like a month ago, you became activated. Mm. You're working in the lavender fields and Right. What was the thing that activated you and what does activated mean?
1: Oh, you know, I think a lot of people go through the world, and I really choose not to judge. If people are into just being entertained or if they don't care about this kind of work or they think activism is silly, uh, I choose not to judge them. Every person has their path, and it's their choice. But I do think that peop- some people are just asleep, and we, we do use that, don't we? And yes. the time of the Reg Veda is ending and people are waking up. So I wasn't asleep, and I was just at this period of my life was working in actually a store where I sold lavender products and it was quite enjoyable and it was an easy life and I loved the water and I had this house on the beach that I rented. But I think when I went to what happened when I went to El Paso, I was working in one of the shelters and I met a family actually it was a father and his son and they were indigenous <laughs> and they could not even speak Spanish. And they had just come out of ice and the little boy only had one shoe. You know, it was just seeing people in their most vulnerable most desperate. And I actually did a thesis when I was young, when I was in school. And it w- I was actually in the French department because there were no Asian language. Uh, there was not an Asian language department in my school in Louisiana. My husband was working mm. in South Louisiana. So I went to school there and then got very interested in folklore. So yes. I became a student of folklore, became my major folklore in English and did a semester project. And they asked me to develop it into a project. So it became my thesis. And it was about refugees. So I became really acutely aware. My dad at the time, was he had a stint. He was a U.S. diplomat, but he had a stint at UNHCR, a commission on human rights. And I went to quite a few gatherings about refugees. So then I developed this thesis and I learned that refugees are different from immigrants because they average only two hours to two days to live their, leave their whole entire life behind forever. We all have to think mm. about that. Suppose there is actually a film coming out, an indie film coming out that I found out about called If the Tables Were Turned. So look for that, If the Tables Were Turned, and it's set in America, and we're under there's a foreign army coming in, and an American family is running, and you know eventually they're all separated and the children are taken mm. and this kind of thing. So the the idea of being a refugee is very different. So anyway, it activated me back to my early days when I was in El Paso and I was working actually with refugees. And I know many people don't like that term. I mean, we were called refugees when we evacuated from Katrina and we felt there was a stigma with that. And right now I'm hearing there's a stigma with calling the immigrants refugees. So I just would like to say that uh, to be sensitive. But I was working with these folks who were running from gosh knows what, and they didn't even speak Spanish. So I brought out a map. On my phone, and we found where they were from in, in Guatemala, oh, and they were wow. so delighted. And I just had that human connection. I was actually working in the infirmary as the night person, so I saw a lot of folks, and I just was so touched. I just thought, you know, there's so much going on in the world. I still have my energy. I'll tell you what activated me was this amazing dog I have named Simba, who's oh, a great Simba. Pyrenees. You remember Simba? Oh, God. But-
0: Beautiful, white, gorgeous, enormous... <laughs> calm, zen dog.
1: (laughs) It's like, gosh, the best... I mean, it's like a huge body pillow. (laughs) That's what he is. While I was at Kavanaugh, uh, the Kavanaugh protests in D.C., My friend, my dear friend, Carol Matthews, who was taking care of him, wrote me to say he'd stopped eating. And I always took it for for granted that Simba would live forever because his health was so good. He was not food-oriented, so he was very healthy, not overweight, like you said, very calm, Mm. asked for nothing, super easy dog, just an amazing presence. So I rushed back, and he just wouldn't eat. Mm. So I took him up to the beach house, and for two weeks, I helped him die. It was, you know, uh, a tough time, but I didn't want him to suffer. So I promised him as soon as he couldn't get up and walk outside, I would help him go, and that mm-hmm. time came. So we helped him leave, and then we buried him on a bluff at my friend Christian's house, where he had a view of the ocean because he loved a view. He loved looking out. He just he was very visual dog. And uh, at that point, I decided, you know what, Simba is gone. I have two wonderful children. So independent. They're both in school doing great. There's nothing to tie me here to the islands. I need to get on the road and go see where I'd be of best use and best service. So that's when I packed up and left. And so I'm in this limbo right now. I'm actually applying for a job with Doctors Without Borders because I speak French. And I've had experience overseas, and I can really rough it. You know, I lived in a tent for two months with zero degree and below weather at Standing Rock. So I didn't grow up with a lot of comforts. I had a comfortable life, but somehow growing up overseas in Asia and backpacking around and that kind of thing, I uh, can live on a shoestring, and I can sleep in a sleeping bag and in my car and be perfectly happy.
0: (laughs) The phrase that's coming to mind right now is close to the earth. Mm. I just feel like I think you're such an extraordinary person. Mm. And through this podcast and just through life, I've learned that we're all mirrors for each other, right? We're reflecting something to each other. And for me, what you reflect is staying close to the earth. Mm. Thank you. Staying close
1: to what's true, what Mm. roots us, what connects us is this, it is grounding and when I feel adrift I just go outside and stand on the ground barefoot I'll ground myself and Mother Earth and Pachamama and Unchimaka it is one of the things that also drives me but I, I do believe just working in your in whatever wherever it is I believe for people it's great if people and this is something I'd like to say I think it's great if people need, have the calling to go elsewhere I think it's very important to look around in your community and see what needs to be done but if you have the calling listen to that and you can go elsewhere and lend your services do your best not to take resources from from the local folks don't ask people to fund your activism be responsible because if you can do just as much work where you are then that's more valuable than having experience and putting resources towards going off to this place mm. uh, when i was on my way to standing rock i had just finished again stint and it was november and i was on my way to see my children for christmas mm. so i justified going to standing rock saying well it's just on the way so i'm not like using all these resources to get to standing rock i paid my way there i did a fundraiser raised money for food because i was going to be working in the kitchens put it all into the kitchens and then you know after a couple months i went down And spent time with my children. So that's just my opinion. It's not everyone's. But I think look around you. There's so much that people can do right where, you know, a soup kitchen or a detention center or an elderly neighbor, you know, this kind of thing. But if you're called to go simmer, by all means do it. Just don't put yourself on a pedestal and say, hey, I'm so great. I'm doing this look. I need money for this. I have an issue with that. Hmm. There are too many people of color who don't have perhaps the advantages that activists, some activists have. That's very wise
0: and valuable. And that speaks to me. That resonates to me. Thank you. Yes.
1: Can I mention what's happening uh, possibly the day that you're airing this? You said you might. this might be your Mother's this Day show? This will be my
0: Mother's Day show,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah, well, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. And on this day, we're remembering the children in detention. And I really do believe it was one of my teachers, Ama, that gave me the inspiration to do something on Mother's Day for children and Mm. mothers who may be detained and families being separated. So there are probably, by Mother's Day, going to be about 20 different rallies where people just come. And what we're seeking to do is uplift the voices of those most impacted. So we do have a few people who feel safe. And I have one woman who's a dreamer who feels safe enough to speak. And I'm going to speak about my mother's internment and how Mm. she actually doesn't talk about it all these years wow. later. So on this day, we're rallying for people to, wherever they are, support the youth that are in detention and the children who've been taken from the families and the kids who are missing still. Yes. So happy Mother's Day. And, and look around <laughs> you wherever you may be and see if there's a Mother's Day rally near you. There's one happening in Austin. Uh, Marina Vasquez, my good friend there, is running that one. And of course, there's going to be one, a local coalition is leading the charge in Homestead, Florida. Another one's happening in El Paso. Of course, we have a big one happening in D.C., so look around. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you, Amelia, for letting me give that plug. Yes,
0: absolutely. Mm. Well, Fran, I, I always like to ask this question at mm. the end. If you could speak to your younger self at any point,
1: mm.
0: what might she say to you,
1: and what might you say to her? Wow. She might say to me... Well, one of the things I always tell my mother, and this is funny, is that, gosh, you gave us such an amazing childhood. Everything was downhill after that <laughs> So my younger self might say, just keep going. You know, what I'm experiencing now as the younger self is going to shape you as a wonderful sapien. (laughs) And don't look back and have such nostalgia that it I always feel there's so much magic in life and it's so exciting and what's around the next corner and there's so many amazing people and somehow have this great optimism despite the suffering that I've seen. So that's what she might say to me. And the older self, look at my younger self and say really enjoy every moment now because your life will change. Really enjoy these wonderful travels that you're so lucky to have and soak up every moment. Enjoy time with your parents. Honor your parents, which we always did, but just really learn as much as you can from your elders, because therein lies a great gift and knowledge and wisdom. I lied. I have one more question. Okay, sure, <laughs> it was sure. inspired me. You just said
0: that despite the suffering that you have seen and. I think this is throughout your life, the different scenarios that you've found yourself in, not just right now, your mother, where she came from, what she had to go through, and yet you still have this optimism, and that's so important.
1: You know, I met an interesting activist once in Portland who said, because I made a comment about Hope, and he said, "Hope. What's hope? Do it anyway. Do it even if you don't have hope." It was such an interesting concept to me that totally stayed with me. And I, because we all talk about that. Well, we have hope, and we hope this, and but just do it because it's the right thing anyway. And it's not really related to your question. It just triggered that memory. I'm not sure why it is that I'm so optimistic, or I don't know if that's the right word but I can always find the joy in small things. And I I just feel really lucky that way. That I It it helps helps me keep going. And I think I've had so many wonderful experiences that have helped me realize there's more to the 3D world. Not everyone feels this way. I'll tell this quick story that when I was at Standing Rock, my very first day, who is now my dear friend and elder, Cheryl Angel, was leading Mm -hmm. the Women's Silent March. And I heard her say at the gathering before we started walking up to the front lines, up to the big tanks, she said, all of you activists need to become spiritual, and all of you spiritual people need to become activists. And it really stayed with me. And so now, if I had to describe myself, I say I'm a spiritual activist. Hmm. Like, I will go out into the world, I take my spirituality, my deep, knowing that I know that we're spiritual beings having temporary human experience on anything is possible we limit ourselves so I think that magic that knowing and amazing things happening to me like the time I lost my keys in the water in Kauai my car keys and I was alone on the island and there was no way that I would have found them except I was led to the women who found them by some weird wow. it's a weird story but my phone died I was completely at a loss people were leaving it was getting dark and I had looked everywhere and I there were many people on the beach and I walked up to the women who found it and said could I use your phone because I lost my keys and they said wow somebody sent you to us because we've got your keys Wow <laughs> that kind of thing happens over and over and over again to mm-hmm. me so I think if Anyone questions that we have guides or angels or ancestors or whatever you want to call it, tap into that because you might be in a sticky situation sometime. But you're never alone. I think that's what helps me. I just know that there's something beyond this life yes. and good things and the idea that I will see my father again. And yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. There, there's so much mystery and magic in the world. Mm. I'm not sure I understand the yin and yang of suffering and, you know, I'm not sure I understand that. I, I did learn as, a, as a, someone who practiced Reiki that it's very important not to rush in and fix them because you might be taking away something that they need. So you wait for people to ask for help. And this is the same in activism. Raise up the voices of those you're possibly helping if it's not your direct experience. Be there to help, but don't run in and try to fix everything. Because com- you know situations are complex, yes. and you're just there for a second maybe of their whole life, and you're not the savior. You're maybe a catalyst, you're maybe an ally, a friend, but they have their experience, and you may not understand completely what that is. So that's just another little aside. I love that. But no, you are extraordinary. And no, I,
0: you are, <laughs> I just appreciate you showing up to be the vessel to share your story today. And thank you, thank you for being here and thank doing you. what you're doing in the world.
1: Thank you for what you're doing. <laughs> what an amazing project. Let's all support Amelia. <laughs> Yay. Yay.
0: Thank, thank you, you Fran. Thank you. Much love. Mm. Thank you for listening. That is our story for today. Today's episode is especially dedicated to all mothers currently being separated from their families and to the children being detained in centers around the country. To learn more about the work being done to help these families, please visit mothersdayrally.com. As Fran said, if you can't travel, look around in your local community to see how you can get involved. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a comment, sharing, liking, or subscribing to this podcast. We're on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Luminary. And until next time, Good night, good morning, good afternoon, wherever in the world you may be.